0: Welcome to our podcast, Conversations About Student Mental Health. I'm Chris Leonard, clinical social worker working with adolescents for over 25 years. In this podcast, I talk with school administrators, educators, clinicians, and parents to open a dialogue that will help the growing number of students struggling with mental illness. As we record this episode in early June, COVID-19 vaccines are available for students as young as 12, and schools across the country are preparing to reopen fully for the 2021-22 school year. Most students and their parents are welcoming the return to full-time, in-person learning. However, for students who have struggled with school refusal before and during the pandemic, Hybrid and remote learning may have provided a welcome respite from their difficulties with school attendance. For these students, the prospect of returning to school may seem overwhelming. There are a variety of causes of school avoidance. Some students are struggling with a mental health challenge, such as depression or an anxiety disorder. Some may be grappling with a complex family dynamic that presents a compelling reason to stay home. Some have difficulty coping in the school environment, perhaps due to bullying, or an overall lack of success at school. Other students with issues of conduct or oppositional defiance, aren't struggling to attend school at all, but choose to stay out of school to pursue other activities. These are the students we have historically referred to as truant. Whatever the cause, in the wake of over a year of hybrid and remote learning, Students have experienced a new normal of staying home and school professionals are concerned that a wave of school refusal will hit us this fall. So how can we prepare? My guest today is a recognized leader in New Jersey education. And as you will glean from his bio, an extremely busy professional. He will be offering his perspective as an experienced administrator on school refusal. Dr. Paul Barbato is Director of Special Services in the Dumont Public Schools in New Jersey. He is an adjunct professor at three New Jersey colleges, Fairleigh Dickinson University, New Jersey City University, and Hudson County Community College. Dr. Barbato holds leadership positions in several key New Jersey educational organizations. He is chair of the New Jersey State Special Education Advisory Council, SSEAC, president of New Jersey Association of Pupil Services Administrators, otherwise known as NJAPSA, and executive board member of the New Jersey Special Education Administrators Association, as well as the Bergen County Special Services School District Advisory Committee. In addition, Dr. Barbato is also an NJ Leader to Leader mentor and teaches within the NJ Excel and NJ TLC program of NJPSA. Dr. Barbato, I usually thank guests for taking time out of their busy schedules, but for you, I feel this is a huge understatement. I'm so honored that you set aside time to speak with me today. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much for the invitation.
0: Uh, it's great to have you. Uh, I think we have a lot to talk about, so let's jump right in. So we, people are really interested in ha- what to do about school refusal, and to remediate it effectively, I think we have to start with a thorough assessment based on data. A- and ideally, we want to identify students at risk by catching early warning signs before the school refusal behavior becomes entrenched. Can you talk about some of the elements and data points that go into a thorough uh, data-based assessment? Sure. And Chris, school refusal is a problem.
1: It's a problem across the board, across grade levels, and in many different homes and in all of our schools. And what we've done to address it on an individual basis has involved a lot of people. It's not just an, an individual solution or one person helping the student or helping the family with the situation of school refusal. What's worked is first to identify exactly what the triggers are and understanding the nature of what is reinforcing the student to remain home and not coming to school. Mm. And typically what we've done is implement a school refusal assessment scale by Kearney And we've also taken some data using the childhood behavioral Rating scale or checklist. Um, Certainly, if the teachers are aware of attendance concerns, we will have the teacher request assistance from the building level intervention and referral services committee, which will have meetings to discuss ways to support the teacher, support the staff working with the, the student, and memorialize a plan moving forward. And that plan will involve a review of attendance, any nurse visits, any work avoidance in the classroom or any other observational data that teachers can provide that gives more elements to the story, the vignette, if you will, of what that presenting difficulty is for the student. And as we gather data, if the student has an IEP or doesn't have an IEP, it may involve very closely to work with the case manager And if the student doesn't have an IEP, certainly the school counselor uh, of the school working hand-in-hand with the building administrator, with the teachers on the grade level, and of course the parents. But the first step is to really get a clear idea of what school refusal behavior looks like. Is it an avoidance? Is it access to something at home? Is it something related to some traumatic experience that recently occurred that we're unaware of? And typically uh, there could be some factors that we're unfamiliar with that can be uncovered with this data collection. And oftentimes uh, agencies outside of the school and, and in some situations, some pediatric offices have implemented an adverse childhood experience rating scale to help link parents and families to services outside of the home based on the data collected from the what's called ACE score you know, or a scale, I should say. Uh, So if that's available, that's also rich data to see if there are any any other confounding factors that may be contributing to why the student is not regularly attending school, you know, and outside of our pandemic year, which is an anomaly with the virtual or hybrid or full day or modified school day schedule, you know, we will see variation of what school refusal looks like, what it looks like in detail. So I, I guess the first step to go through uh, is really identifying what data do you have available? And if you're finding yourself not in a position to have clear data, then implement some survey scales. Collect as much data as you can from the teachers, the parent, from the student, if you can. This way, once you have that data collection, you have it all out in a meeting, talk about what you've collected and move forward with a solid plan.
0: That's great. That's real uh, detailed, uh, really detailed suggestions on uh, specific scales and data collection points that people can use. And it sounds like the biggest mistake people could make is just kind of take a one size fits all approach, which I think historically was the approach to students missing school. It was either overlooked, um, you know, especially in the lower grades or just assumed to be truancy and, uh, you know, kind of treated with one one form of intervention. Um, So I'm thinking that, uh, you know, one of the things I've seen in the past is the importance of family involvement. You know, so once we, once we have that data, we want to have to, we want to use that data to formulate a plan for intervention. And then we want to engage in family outreach and engagement. Uh, This this can yield multiple benefits. What are your thoughts about engaging the family? Absolutely essential. A plan will not be helpful, successful, sustainable,
1: manageable without the direct involvement of the parent or guardian or adults in that child's life. You know, whether it's a situation where the child is living with grandparents or an extended family member, if the child is displaced, if there's some homeless situation uh, that may contribute to the the factors that relate to refusing to come to school, but absolutely essential for the family component to be involved. And the linkage that the school can provide to the family is of utmost importance. And the linkages outside of the school to such organizations like the county's care management organization. I know in our county, Bergen's Promise is actively involved with a lot of our families in, in our, in Dumont, as well as other towns in our county, you know, over 70 school districts. And certainly our county's Division of Family Guidance, they have 20, I think 26 or 27 some odd uh, programs available for families after school, direct support mm-hmm. for students. And definitely the Family Support Organization, which is a great organization provided by our county or in any every county. And uh, it could be a good support for the parent, like a parent-to-parent mentoring or sort of like peer mentoring support and trainings. So definitely the first step in involving the family is to make sure the family is, is linked with appropriate referrals and, and services outside of the school that also work with the school. Um, certainly informing the parent of the option of uh, perform care to access to be that First step to call to secure additional services in the home, which may range from counseling, which may range from parent training, which may range from other behavioral supports if needed. Um, and, And practically speaking, that could be what a missing ingredient to an effective solution sounds like when referring to school refusal. You know, it also may identify some other risk factors or family constellation uh, qualities that may be in the mix, whether there's a conflict in the home or if there's some isolated incident that you know, has provided uh, some trauma, or if there's an, an enmeshment or some parent parental role or parent training needed to kind of clarify expectations and reinforcement strategies in a way to reinforce expected behaviors and, and so forth or even just building on um, relationships to strengthen the child's own sense of safety within that home, right? So certainly linkages that the family can have outside the school district in conjunction with the school district is critical. And that family engagement is really the first key element of any intervention.
0: Yeah, it really is. It's really another data point, right? Because there's so much information that the family provides about how they operate, how they don't operate, what's, what are their priorities, what's important to them, what are their stressors. Uh, This is all uh, such important information. And then I'm also thinking about one of the first things you said is that, you know, school refusal happens across grade levels and you need to involve a lot of people. It's not something you take on by yourself. It's you need these, uh, the county resources that, and there are, you know, all of these resources available and all of these organizations that can, can work with families and provide various supports um, that can really, you know, help a family move forward in a different way. So that, that, that brings me to this whole idea of, of forming a team, Um, you know, you've addressed that to some extent so far, but can you can you talk about, you know, what goes into forming a team for a, a particular student? You know, what, what are the elements there? Well, the elements,
1: hands down, need to involve the school administrator because when you think of attendance concerns and perhaps a truancy referral to the county or involvement of the court, the building administrator has to be involved to oversee that all the supportive options available to the family and student are being exhausted. So typically a best practice in my, in my opinion has been to memorialize the team's role and the action steps of the team in what's referred to as an intervention and referral services committee plan. And by nature of this existing committee that is in every public school, you will have the parent involved, the teachers involved, the school counselor involved, perhaps the school nurse involved, the administrator, any other members of the child study team, like our psychologist or social worker or learning consultant or behaviorist um, will certainly be included if relevantly able to provide support to this request for addressing school refusal. Um, And it would be very important to clarify what the team's role would be and what their responsibilities may sound like. And, and Chris, that may sound like a set schedule of when calls are made home, just to verify that the student is signing on if the student is virtual currently, right? Since that option exists now. Or if the student is not home, maybe we have home visits, or maybe counseling is provided in a neutral location, or maybe there's a transition plan where the student is able to attend part of the school day at a, at a time or during a class period most comfortable, as evidenced by the data collected, or maybe in a supportive environment where the student feels more connected with a certain staff member. Uh, We've done that um, to kind of transition slowly that student's acclimation to a longer school day, having a modified school day. So clarifying what that responsibility looks like, what locations are we talking about, who is involved in the follow-up phone calls or presence at the home, and then also providing access to additional training whenever possible. Um, our team member here had mentioned recently, you know, it would be great if we streamlined what we did to help a particular student to other buildings. This way we have the same procedure. And at first, I'm thinking, you know, it makes sense. It's like rock, not rocket science. So we're making it a professional development goal next school year for all of our child safety team members to have to work in conjunction with their building administrators. We're going to streamline our what I just described as a procedure, and we're going to implement it as just a, a document that every school principal and, and vice principal is aware of, of how to follow. This way, there's no mystery, you know, because
0: mm-hmm. decisions
1: are not solved in isolation. You know, decisions are solved when you work collaboratively with people, and um, there is no no eye in the in the word team. And that certainly is true when taking a team approach with addressing school refusal. It sounds as if we're able to isolate, why is the student refusing to go to school? But it's such a complicated question that the multiple perspectives that are involved are very helpful to reveal that.
0: Yes, absolutely. You know, it is so complex. It's so it's so multi-causal. You know, you, you can't just say, "Well, it's because of this, or it's because of this thing over here." It's it's just because of the trauma. It's just because of uh, you know the enmeshment or or whatever the cause may be. Um, I heard a couple of really valuable things there. I mean, you were talking about setting up a structure. You know, it's just like, it's just like scheduling meetings. If you don't schedule a time that you're going to make a phone call, if you don't have a a set routine that you're going to follow, I mean, that's a parallel process for the student and the family who may need to develop some routines. So you have a team that has routines. The other thing uh, that struck, stood out to me, or second thing was relationships, you know, identifying those staff members who have Already have strong relationships with the students who can be key contact points for that student. And then the third thing you talked about was the additional training, and really uh, generalizing procedures across buildings. You know, when once you learn about how to handle a particular pattern, that gives you a generalizable set of steps that you can follow, and always with an eye on individualization, of course, but it does give, you can generalize based on working with an enmeshed family or an isolated family or, or where trauma is involved or, you know, there are particular organizations you involve, particular steps you take, a particular order. Am I, does that sound like what you were, you were it saying? It does. It absolutely does, yeah. Chris. And
1: it also brings to light any areas of deficit that we have, that we need additional training in, which is never exhaustive, uh, nor is it ever refused. In fact, we will be having additional training on school anxiety, school refusal for all of our CST members, our psychologists, social workers, learning consultants, speech and language specialists, as well as our school counselors uh, in the fall as we embark on a full school day. And uh, in the summer, we, we have isolated students that are on the radar and have begun to isolate some transitional activities through counseling Um, we are very fortunate to have a mental health agency associated and working within our district. And we have a full-time clinician and she provides targeted counseling groups to kids who may need additional support outside of school-based counseling. And what affords that student is not only access to her services in in an individual or small group, but also the families to the mental health agency outside of the school day because there could be, an opportunity for families to really partake in uh, family structure groups that work on reinforcement strategies or or building their own understanding of what mental illness looks like or what it sounds like or what they can do differently in terms of their own parenting style. Or there could be targeted groups that deal with anxiety or deal with um, other at-risk factors like drugs or alcohol or other components that may play a role in that refusal behavior, or just the anxiety about doing something that would have been routine in other situations, so you're you're onto something. And I think that the more we we talk about streamlining the procedure, the more we find that there's more to really uncover and receive training on. And I think that that's what I love about our field is that not only is uh, each school day different but it's also an opportunity to really expand and and really evolve our own practices to really individualize what we're not doing in an effort to to make it better.
0: That's a great point. I mean, we never do it perfectly. We never, you know, we're never finished. Uh, Years ago, I worked in a machine shop and at the end of the day, I knew how many cylinder heads I had reconditioned, you know, and it was like, okay, I did 10 today. I did 20 today, done, go home, wash my hands you don't wash your hands and go home you know it's there's always more to do always more to learn and we as educators have to constantly be learning ourselves in order to really you know be the most available and the best resources for our students and families so that you know you you really have included it in your professional learning community it's really it's it's part and parcel of the learning and you've made it a priority uh above all you know because student you have to be able to work with the anxiety the depression the school refusal the other mental health issues because if you don't the students are just not available for learning right so so up until now uh we've been talking about all of the practices all the responses and and, and preparation but one of the things i think it's important to touch on is prevention. And I know from previous discussions with you that you do a lot in Dumont uh, to, towards prevention. Um, and early intervention and prevention is one of the, the best ways to you know, reduce the amount of school refusal, to nip it in the bud quickly. Um, it's one of the very best forms of intervention. So I know that one of the things that you do in Dumont is you use a multi-tiered approach to prevention. Can you describe a little bit of what you do? Because I know it's a whole lot. Thank you, and you know, again, it's it's not just one person. We have
1: amazing principals, uh, a superintendent who is extremely proactive and uh, has his finger on the pulse of everything, and is very supportive. Along with a very um, supportive board of education that allows us to have these great programs, and uh, when we meet at, as an administrative council and develop an understanding of what our district goals will be for the school year, and certainly isolate building-level goals, we focused on areas that really promote this um, SCL approach, right? So mm-hmm. one particular area that we redesigned and reexamined how we're providing consequences to disciplinary infractions is that we've implored a lot of support with a restorative practice model. and when I share Mm -hmm. it that way. So instead of an out of school suspension for something that may have been a classroom infraction, disciplinary uh, related incident, um, we will provide a structured school day at a particular date that the parent is aware of. And we will isolate that structured day to involve a rotation of educational specialists, such as our psychologist, our social worker, our school counselor, and we're very fortunate to have higher ed institution linkages with graduate internships. So we do have school psychology interns and school social worker interns, Rutgers and FDU and NJCU. We had a, a couple of speech and language specialists from NYU and other places like Ramapo or social worker interns. And part of their training involves being involved in a school day and really learning from their CST mentor. So, we've incorporated a lot of the interns in this restorative practice structured day program. And FDU has really guided us on certain materials that we've incorporated as school based counseling materials. So, we utilize that as a resource. And um, I have to tell you, it's made a big effect because the association with an out of school suspension, not that we were high, we weren't high at all but just looking at a different way of looking at not reinforcing the very behavior you're hoping not to see again, right? Whether it's name-calling, exactly. yeah. bullying, and certainly if there's anything tied to some peer conflict, developing an understanding of what to do differently through that um, one-on-one approach or small group approach of really demystifying what went wrong, what can we do differently, you know, really tease out a, a, an alternate action plan with the student that's been our tier one sort of change of how we looked at disciplinary infractions and disciplinary consequences another program that we identify as a tier two involves our lower grades our three and four and five grades and we isolate two grades per grade level or i should say per school year And we have four elementary buildings and we have the teachers identify through a, um, almost like a request form. uh, Students that may benefit from additional peer support with tutoring, with instruction, with social emotional opportunities to interact with other peers and who would benefit from having a mentor. And we select five students per building. So a max of 20 students per year. And we run a program after school and we we run the program, our board of education sponsors it and allows us to transport the students from each of their elementary buildings to our high school setting in our media center. And so the students who are in third grade, who may just know their own school building now have doubled or tripled their number of, of potential friends in the other elementary buildings, but now they're in a new setting. Now they they have something to look forward to in high school. Mm -hmm. And we have our school counselors and our supervisor of guidance has been extremely active in this program in identifying high school mentors, whether they're from the Tomorrow's Teachers program or whether they're in the school play or if they're playing athletics or if they're in a school club or if they just want to work with students. And we have an application for them to complete. And we provide training to them from our school psychologists and our school psychology interns. And they provide training on positive reinforcement strategies of how to reinforce appropriately with students. And we hire a teacher and an an instructional assistant for the program. It's a general ed, special ed program. So it's a full inclusion model. And uh, we run it for 16 or so sessions from 3.30 to 5 o'clock twice a week. And it really is a program that starts off with homework help. We provide a snack and the students have an opportunity to kind of work on homework, which is often a bone of contention for parents. And we provide a structured lesson from 4 to 4.30 that the teacher prepares after speaking with each of those teachers of those participants. So we have a semblance of some baseline information, lessons are tailored towards areas of concern or kind of supplementing what is needed. And then from 4.30 to five, the kids will explore some online options, some educational websites and some educational material, and the parents pick them up at five o'clock. But what's great about this program is our field trip. And this year we provided the program virtually uh, because we didn't want to intermingle the buildings, still at risk with COVID and We did a virtual field trip this year to the Episcan Lighthouse. And it was amazing. Mm. We had a presenter that was at the lighthouse and took us all the way up the stairs and stopped at each landing and showed us what to to see outside the window. And the kids got to learn something that they may not have been able to visit in person. In years past, this program's been around for maybe 10 years or so. Uh, We've gone to FDU where the kids are going to college. And we've had FDU undergraduate students from athletics and different groups from psychology club uh, talk about their experiences of what it's like being in college, what to look forward to. So the kids who may have some apprehension about third grade or fourth grade or fifth grade, we, we house two grade levels each year. If they're having any difficulties, the goal of that, that field trip is to really take them out of that current stress and say, this is what mm-hmm. they have They have something to look forward to at the high school while they're going to go to college if that's one of their post-secondary goals and this is what it's like. And they get to see and hear and learn from students that are actually experiencing that. And the school psychology program at FDU has been instrumental in facilitating our mentors. We do have graduate mentors that work with our high school students. And that has been an extremely successful program for our younger grades. And uh, we have an end of the year ceremony for the kids and they get to see each other and the parents get to intermingle and we give a certificate of completion. And that really is our tier two after school program. In addition to that, a tier one program that we've implemented at the high school for many years, that started out as an idea from our special ed advisory committee is what we call a mental health awareness day. And we house it at the program. It's been in existence perhaps maybe I would say eight years or so. This year, we also did it virtually. And we have different agencies from outside the building, whether it's Division of Family Guidance, mental health agencies that are nearby in our county, certainly um, any other, the stigma-free committee in our town, any other entity that provides support, information, and uh, helpful resources to students, we invite. In addition to that, we had teachers, educational specialists, like our school counselor, psychologists, social workers, work together, our student assistance counselor, work together on providing tables and activities. So instead of going to phys ed class that day, they will rotate during their phys ed class to different stations, learn all about mental health and learn about the stigma associated with mental health, what resources are available to them, what free resources they can learn about, different fields in psychology, uh, certainly ways to build resiliency, mindfulness, looking at uh, growth mindset with Carol Dweck's work. And uh, by the mm-hmm. way, Carol Dweck's work, we incorporate as a pre and post measure, uh, looking at her growth mindset. We incorporate that as a pre and post measure in our after school program, the program that I mentioned before. which oh, is Oh, excellent. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing because there's a lot of research that ties growth mindset with reading skills, you know, in the lower grades. Um, so mm-hmm. that's just a, a side point. But we incorporate a lot of areas that contribute toward maintaining a positive mental health, but also allow students the opportunity to know that it's not taboo, right? You can talk about mental health, you can talk about it if you're anxious, and these are some alternate ways to handle. We have a holistic approach, our school nurses involved in looking at healthy eating options, or phys ed teachers involved in looking at activities. Our school counselors uh, one year had a mandala station where kids were coloring. Our our teacher had a graffiti wall where they had to uh, write positive statements and put it on a tree that she made. Uh, So very creative ideas that we've implemented as a tier one. And we would like to bring that down to our middle school level, to our sixth, seventh and eighth graders to have an annual similar event. Uh, So that's Mm -hmm. a tier one program. In addition to that, one of our principals uh, had observed what's called a crazy maze, which is really just laminate, pieces that are placed on the hallway floor and opportunities for students to have brain breaks or stretch breaks, whether it's like a bear crawl or something posted on the wall where there's some some physical activity. And so we were able to provide a crazy maze for each of the five buildings. And the principals have chosen where in in the buildings uh, that are strategic, where kids are able to kind of have a break, a mental health break, so to speak. Or even just as they're transitioning to classes, they can engage in some physical activity to kind of break up that uh, feeling, whatever that feeling is, right? So that's another thing that we've implemented as a tier one option. Um, We also do have a very close relationship and rapport with our county's care management organization, Bergen's Promise. And they have Mm -hmm. been instrumental in providing nurtured heart training to all of our staff members last Mm. year. And we had a professional development training where Bergen's Promise facilitated for multiple trainers from around the state to really pilot this nurtured heart approach uh, for for school personnel, all school personnel, including administrators. And this past year, we made it a goal to train our parents. We weren't able to do that last year because the pandemic started in March. So we made it a district goal this year. And we were able to provide training for our parents, which we will have. Uh, again, because it was very helpful in looking at this Nurtured Heart approach. But I mentioned that because the CMO is a great organization to work with from the school district's perspective because they are involved with the same families that we work with. So we have set up quarterly meetings where the CMO supervisors and care managers, they're called care managers come in and meet with our case managers, whether you're a psychologist, social worker, learning consultant, and our school counselors. And they will, we will talk about the families that we share services with, right? The very short list, and we try to maximize the amount of support each family receives. And if there's information that the school can benefit from learning in terms of a supportive uh, service that's being provided by the CMO, the Care Management Organization, and we can provide that as well. We'll do that on the school day. And what's interesting is that the CMO has their own structure of meetings called a child family team meeting, which involves the school district as well. They kind of have a wraparound program model where it involves the school district, involves mm-hmm. support personnel working with the family. And so it's important information that the CMO and the child Say team and school counselors are able to receive to kind of help families and maximize supports. And it, it really invests in a conversation that delves into what is working, what is not working, and what is not working, what can we do differently? And and that's been uh, something that we piloted a few years ago that we've maintained. Like you said earlier, having dates on the schedule is important. We have dates on the schedule uh, four times a school year, and we block out hours, like three hours, so we can make sure that we have a detailed conversation. And a a lot of good work is done out of that. And one other approach that we've taken to address any hesitancy or any fear of what the future may hold in working with our high school students is that we received training on implementing the New Jersey Career Assistance Navigator tool called Reality Check. And this is something that a school counselor or our CST or case manager, whether it's a psychologist, social worker, learning consultant, can work one-on-one with a student. And the student is able to think about what are some post-secondary options that he or she are considering. And the reality check looks at exactly what those questions are to get there. You know, in terms of a salary, what salary do you want? What kind of position do you want to hold once you're done with all your schooling? Oh, what kind of schooling will you need to get to this certain career option? So that's been eye-opening. And we incorporate that data in IEP discussions under the transition plan. How appropriate, right? The student is a part of the meeting, the parent's a part of the meeting, the parent may learn about an option that never was discussed at home, or perhaps wasn't identified before this reality check or some other uh, way of identifying post-secondary plans. And it's just a great way to build a roadmap to address any fears and apprehension with concrete plans to address it head on whether it's within a school-based counseling session or whether it's in a a health class to kind of look globally at what students can do to deal with uncertainty or whether to build resiliency or looking at perspective taking um, to kind of build that ability to cope with the unknown. So I think that's just, I would say a few examples. Outside of that, we've had a lot of teachers uh, be very creative within their own classrooms in dealing with students who are virtual and students who are in person and students who are kind of in between. And they have developed some some activities like developing a class mural because we've had students that came to the building for the first time after being virtual for so long, and there needed to be some transitional activity. The so teachers have been creative and and they really have been working incredibly hard under the circumstances of all the the stressors and dealing with their own self-care um, of managing their own emotions and priorities and time management, and uh, certainly the needs of, of all their students. But we've seen class murals, we've seen activities that share an ownership of something within the classroom, so that the students feel invested in being there because they're contributing toward the safety and concern or uh, sus- sustainment of something of a class procedure or class project. So that's been something that we've implemented uh, as well. But in terms of self-care, our director of curriculum and instruction and our principals have been pivotal in identifying self-care options. And we've had uh, the PSA, Principal Supervisor Association Consultants, in to provide some self-care training for all of our staff and school personnel. And and that's been helpful. And a lot of staff members have, commented on how crucial it is to allocate 10 minutes or to disconnect with technology for a certain part of the day. And I think all of us got into that mind frame of responding to every email outside of work because we wanna make sure that we are reaching every student. But sometimes without having a clear set of a self-care procedure or go-to option, it can become very overwhelming very quickly. So that self-care element is crucial in any tiered approach for the personnel that are involved in providing that direct support or indirect support for the student or certainly the whole class.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you, as, as Pat Hovey always says, you have to put the oxygen mask on yourself first. Um, so that self-care element, everybody always you know, kind of puts that on on the side, but it's really where you have to begin. You have to be really able to breathe yourself to be able to have that sense of spaciousness yourself because you're dealing with all of this difficulty that the students are having and and it can be wearing if we're not taking care of ourselves. Um, You really, I mean, I know you said you were just gonna talk about a few things, but that is a really comprehensive and strategic approach to school refusal that, that you and your team are taking. Uh, so it's quite impressive. Um, And I could imagine that some of our listeners might be a little daunted saying, oh my gosh, look at all these things they have in place. So what about the school that is just starting to, on a plan to address school refusal? What could they realistically put in place by September, and where would you say they should focus their efforts now?
1: I think an, an easy first step Chris, would be to use your student database on identifying who the kids are off the bat that are having difficulties with attendance. Isolate who the students are, meet with each grade level, make it a point to structure a time as the building administrator to meet with each grade level or department and have the school counselors present and CSC members present and collectively meet to identify who the students are in their respective classes that have not handed in work? Have we communicated to parents? Have we delineated exactly what needs to get completed for a a grade? Um, Have we communicated to the student that um, we are being supportive and that we want to make sure that they are supported? Are we linking the parent with the understanding that we are in that supportive role and that we'd like to isolate time with them to really prioritize what they're seeing as any concerns at home? Um, mm-hmm. I think once that list of students identified, then you're able to piecemeal what teams are, are needed to really address individually for that student. And um, it could involve like last summer, for example, we took that approach and each department at the high school met with our child study team and our department supervisors and we created a list of students who were on the radar of missing assignments with attendance, any concerns with uh, failing or any concerns social-emotionally. Mm-hmm. Now, this is outside of our procedure where a student has um, a thought of self-harm or a thought to hurt someone else. You know, we have those standard procedures where we involve an immediate work yes. personnel to interact with the student, reach out to the parent, involve any other agencies if we need to. Out Parallel to that, identifying who the students are at risk is important because once you know who you're working with, then you can tailor, is this student's Mm -hmm. need best met through individualized counseling? Is this student's need best met through um, a list on Google Doc where it's a shared document with the parent and the students that the student has a roadmap to follow to get to the finish line? Or is this Mm -hmm. a meeting that perhaps prompts uh, an underlying disability that perhaps we need to investigate to see if there's an evaluation that's required? To delve into to see if there's a special ed concern um, or certainly uh, if, if the individualized need can be met with the linkage for the family whether it's through performed care whether it's with the existing mental health affiliation that we have with the agency that that's involved with our district care plus um, or certainly if it's one of the county agencies whether it's dfg division of Family guidance certainly linking the parents to family support organization and uh, without a doubt, you know, involving the care management organization when appropriate, if needed to really maximize and leverage support for the family during this time. Um, but getting, getting started on a plan, the first step is to identify who to work with and who to work with. Um, I always feel that the teacher in the classroom is the first person to consult with because they have the most steady interaction with the pieces of data that may lead to a specific intervention, whether it's attendance, whether it's uh, work avoidance, whether it's some social emotional concern, whether it's some peer conflict, you have to rule out bullying, you have to rule out a lot of other uh, confounding factors here. Um,
0: But having the administrator involved in that every step of the way is pivotal. You're so right. That, that administrator involvement and 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 using the teacher as as a primary source of information and data. Who knows more about the students than the teacher? Um, you know, so easy to overlook, but so important to, to really go to first. Um we're about out of time, but Dr. Barbato, I want to thank you for sharing your insights and so very many best practices with us today. I can envision our listeners. Uh, using the rewind feature and going back and and listening and and, and jotting things down because there are so many great gems, so many tips in here that people can use. So I really want to thank you. And um, you and your team are working so hard. So I wish you the very best for a successful end of the school year. And I hope you're able to get a little rest this summer.
1: I will. Um, And thank you so much for it's been a year. Thank you very much. And, uh, you know, again, it's
0: It's a team approach
1: and uh, that's what's important to emphasize. Thank you very much.
0: Absolutely, thank you. Conversations about student mental health is brought to you by Thrive Alliance Group, partners in school-based mental wellness. Before we wrap up, I wanna let you know about an upcoming event that can help school professionals who are concerned about risk assessments and suicide prevention. Please join us for our upcoming webinar, When Mental Health is at Risk, an introduction to suicide and risk assessment. You'll learn about suicide risk factors and warning signs, the simple steps involved in conducting an evidence-based risk assessment, as well as how to contract with students for safety and facilitate re-entry to school. For information on registering, please email Christina Jelly at cjelly@thrivealliancegroup.com. at thrivealliancegroup.com. That's cjelly at thrivealliancegroup.com. And for additional resources on school refusal, risk assessment, and other areas of student mental health and wellness, please visit us on the web at www.thrivealliancegroup.com. Thank you for listening, everyone. Have a great rest of the day and take good care.